Isn't it great to have our musicians back? It really is. They fill my heart with their singing and ministry to the Lord. Paul, if it gets any better, I think the angels are going to come to take some lessons. It's a great thrill to come and to worship God with this kind of music. And we have a great God who's worthy of that. I invite you to open your Bible with me to the book of Ephesians, where we will be spending some time over the next few months talking about the new community. We live in a lonely world. Cultural disintegration, the breakdown of the family, increase of crime and violence, and personal isolation result in a sense of being disconnected and without support. We human beings were not created to be solitary individuals, but sharers together in life's experiences. We are made to need each other. John Donne, the famous 17th century poet and preacher, wrote these familiar words, No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. He captured well in that thought that we really belong to one another. But community as a sense of belonging is quickly fading in the age in which we live, in which the primary focus is on diversity, autonomy, personal rights, and special interest group agendas. No society can long exist without some kind of cohesive order shared common values that hold that society together. If that sense of oneness doesn't come through shared values, then it will come some other less pleasant way. The word community comes from two Latin words meaning common and one. It means that we are one because there are things that we have in common. But the divinely instituted community of man was shattered long before the current cultural war. Its original design was ruined by the fall of mankind into rebellion against God. God's ideal of community for mankind could not be realized after that. So, God set about a greater purpose, which he had kept hidden. A purpose to create a new community. One based upon redemption through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This new community is the church, the society of saints, as we've termed it in the past. Those who are chosen by God, purchased by Christ through his death, and sealed for ultimate destiny by the Holy Spirit. Everyone who savingly believes on Christ is a citizen of God's new community. All distinctions prior to that point become meaningless. In chapter 3 of Ephesians, Paul begins to write about this as he speaks about the mystery of Christ in verse 4. This mystery that God is going to create a new community of redeemed humanity. He says about this mystery of Christ in verse 5, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In chapter 2, he has explained how that once the Gentiles were far off, separated, strangers, having no hope, 
without God. And now he says that God's purpose is that those distinctions that cause the Gentiles to be far off and the Jews to be near, those distinctions are no longer existent. He says we are fellow heirs, fellow members, fellow partakers in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of which, he goes on to say, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given. To preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things in order that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. The new community of God is the church and everyone who savingly believes on the Lord Jesus Christ is a part of this community. In this book of Ephesians, the new community is called a new man. Chapter 2, verse 15. It's called one body. God has taken the two groups, Jew and Gentile, and through faith in Christ has made them into one body. Chapter 2, verse 16. In verse 19 of that chapter, he says, We are God's household. Or that is God's family. And he says at the end of the chapter, we are God's holy temple. And in the text we have read, we see that we are fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel that we have believed. The new community is what Jesus promised to build when he said to Peter, on this rock I will build my church. That is the new community that we're talking about and which is exposed to us in this New Testament epistle called Ephesians. Now if there is one word that sums up God's work in his new community, it is the word grace. The new community is a fellowship of grace. And we are its citizens. And as its citizens, we are both the objects of grace and its channels. We receive grace from God in order that we might then share God's grace with others. Twelve times in the book of Ephesians, Paul uses this word grace. He speaks of the glory of this grace. Chapter 1, verse 6. The glory of His grace. Now that glory means that it reflects the very person of God. God is a God who is full of grace. He also speaks of its riches. And describes it as being unfathomable. He says there is no way to plumb the depths of God's grace. There is no way to put words around it. It defies imagination and description. God is rich in grace. Grace is a privilege to enjoy and it's a responsibility to express. There are just two thoughts about grace that I want to leave with you this morning before we go on to other things. The first is that grace is an expression of God's love to sinful humanity. And secondly, God demonstrates His grace in several actions. Let's think first about the fact that grace is an expression of God's love to us. We hear the word grace, and when we hear it, we interpret it, we define it within the grid of our own background and understanding. Therefore, it's important to understand what this word means biblically. What is grace? It might be defined this way in the context of the Bible. Grace is God's kindness and generosity 
to undeserving sinners. Grace is God's kindness and generosity to those who do not deserve to receive it from Him. God's grace springs out of His love. Look in chapter 2 in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace, you have been saved. Grace is not something that we deserve. Grace is not something that we can earn. In fact, that very idea negates grace because grace means it's undeserved. Grace is not something that we work for. Grace is not something that we do things that we might attain more of it. Rather, grace is something that we simply receive. Donald Gray Barnhouse said, Love that goes upward is worship. That's why we come together on Sunday morning to send our love upward in worship to God. He said, Love that goes outward is affection. Love that stoops is grace. The word grace is not just in the New Testament, as you know, it's found in the Old Testament too. Noah found what? Grace in the eyes of the Lord, Genesis chapter 6. That Hebrew word for grace comes from a word that means to stoop, to bend down. Thus it, it, it came to be used for condescending favor. The picture is that of royalty. I have never seen royalty in person, but I've seen royalty on television, as many of you have. And it's interesting when they greet people, that people kneel before them, and they often bend down with an outstretched hand. That act of bending low, of stooping down to the commoner, is the word here for grace in the Old Testament. God is full of grace, which means that He, the eternal King, has stooped low and bent down to us who do not deserve that kind of action. Love that stoops is grace. God's grace comes alone through Christ. It is because of what Jesus did for us that God can be gracious to us. Because Jesus, in suffering and dying on the cross, satisfied the justice of God, which was offended by our sinfulness and rebellion. When God's justice has been satisfied, He can then be gracious. God undertook to satisfy His own justice on our behalf. There was nothing we could do to satisfy His justice. His justice required death, the punishment of death for the sinner. But He Himself came into the world in the person of His Son and stooped to become like us and then went to the cross and there as our substitute died in our place to satisfy the justice of God. And now because God is satisfied, God is propitiated, to use a Bible term, therefore God can be gracious to sinners. God can stoop low to us. The new community is the object of God's grace. Not only in time, but also in eternity. Notice verse 7 of this second chapter. It says, In order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In other words, God is so full of grace that he can't possibly demonstrate all of it in the context of time. He's going to have to go outside of time into eternity. 
and throughout the unending ages that are to come, God is going to keep on doing kind things for us, demonstrating His grace in Christ Jesus. He calls the riches of His grace here surpassing. This afternoon, the staff and elders are going to whop the singles in a game of softball. You didn't think I had the gift of faith, did you? And one of the staff, and I'm not going to name who it will be, mainly because I don't know, may hit a home run. It's going to go over the fence. Over the fence. That's the word for surpassing. It means beyond the boundaries. It goes all the way out of bounds. God's grace covers everything, he says. It's surpassing in its riches. There's no way to contain it. It's a home run hit. And so great is the grace of God that throughout eternity in some ways that he hasn't even told us yet, he's going to keep on showing and demonstrating his kindness toward us in Christ. Well, God demonstrates his grace in varying kinds of actions. There is in the first place saving grace. Verse 5 here says, By grace you have been saved. Verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. You see, here's where the gospel runs counter to religion. Religion says if you work hard enough at it, someday you'll make enough points with God to get by. You just got to keep working at it. You got to keep doing good things and, and good deeds. You've got to go through enough rituals, etc., etc. And you see, it misses the whole point of what we're talking about that grace is the gift of God, it is not the result of works. By grace we're saved, not by our works. God's saving grace is extraordinary. God shows his grace toward us not only in saving grace, but in sanctifying grace. Paul begins this whole epistle by saying, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And what kind of grace is that? These people don't need saving grace, they are believers. But Paul says to them and greet them, grace to you. He's talking about sanctifying grace. That is the kindness of God working on our behalf to transform us, to make us like the Lord Jesus Christ. He is at work in us doing that today. We're not perfect. We aren't people who have arrived, none of us. We are people in whom God is graciously working to make us like His Son. We don't become like Jesus through lists of rules, but by learning to rest in the grace of God. Now that's hard for us to grasp. It's hard for Christians to grasp because we grow up in a world where you're rewarded if you perform. But God's grace is such that his grace works whether we perform or not. God's grace causes our wills to be changed so that we do what pleases Him. It's not a result of have to. He changes us so we want to do what's pleasing to Him the sanctifying grace of God, making us like Jesus, setting us apart from all that we've been in the past, making us new people. And then God demonstrates His grace through serving grace. Paul speaks about that in chapter 3, verse 2, when he says, You have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me. Now, he's not talking about saving grace. He's not referring to sanctifying grace. He's talking here about serving grace. 
He says, God has given me a job. God has given me a duty. He goes on to tell about that in the text we read earlier. He describes this grace given to him as the ability to preach to the Gentiles, Jesus Christ. That was his job. The fact is that every one of us who knows Jesus Christ has received saving grace from God. God's sanctifying grace is at work in our lives now, changing us to be like Jesus. And it will not fail. And God gives to us serving grace. He has given to each of us gifts of the Holy Spirit. Special abilities that just happen to coincide with who He created us to be in our personalities. So that we can enter into service for Him in this world with great satisfaction and fruitfulness. Serving grace. In chapter 4, again Paul speaks about this serving grace in verse 7. When he says, to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. God wants us to use the gifts that he's placed within us. There's a matter of discovering those gifts. Sometimes I think that we worry too much about discovering them, and we wonder what they are, and we we go through seminars and courses and books trying to decide what our gifts are, when perhaps the best way, after we've been informed about the gifts, the best way to discover them is simply to begin serving the Lord. And it won't take long before the Lord directs us to a place where we feel content and fulfilled in what we're doing and we see God's blessing. And other people confirm to us that that we're plugged in where we belong. Are you plugged in where you belong? God has a place for you in this new community. And He's gifted you to fill that place. And if you don't fill it, there's going to be a bit of a void in the new community. Grace marks the lives of those that it touches. When grace touches you, you can never be the same again. You are a changed person. No society in the world should be characterized by grace like God's new community. The relationships that we have in the church, in our local church, in this family of God, in this new community, should be characterized by acceptance of one another. He talks about that in this book. He says there's no place for bigotry, discrimination. We're not to use our tongues to be critical of others, but we're to use our tongues to edify them and thus give them grace. He says in chapter 4, The new community is to be characterized by forgiveness when others fail us because, as I said before, we aren't perfect and we will fail each other. And we must be quick and ready to forgive even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us. The new community is to be characterized by kindness, doing kind things, unexpected things for one another. The new community is to be characterized by a truthfulness with each other that is saturated with love. Grace doesn't allow us to lie or to deceive one another, but to speak the truth in a loving way. The new community is to be characterized by patience, he says, and perhaps above everything else, gratitude. Our lives should be different due to grace. There's the story that is told about a Sunday school teacher who was quite self-righteous and proud of his Christian life. And he was trying to explain to his class of boys about living a holy life in obedience to Christ. He had his head kind of held high and his chest thrust outward and strutted back and forth in front of them 
And he said to the boys, Now boys, why do people call me a Christian? There was a moment of silence, and then one of the boys raised his hands, and the teacher said, Yes. And the boy responded, Probably because they don't know you, sir. Why do people call us Christians? Hopefully it's because we're part of the new community and grace has so indelibly imprinted itself in our lives that we can never be the same again. Now frankly, this doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens in the context of relationships. That's why we're talking about the new community. We have something in common. We are the children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And that something in common causes us to be one, to be part of one another, to belong to each other. It is not God's plan. It has never been God's plan for human beings to be isolated off by themselves. Sin has created that monstrosity of isolation in the world. God's grace brings us back together. Today you're going to be hearing about opportunities that more than you can personally take advantage of to begin connecting with other people. I hope that every one of you will go through the ministry tent and see there are places where you can plug in in service, in teaching, in being taught, in fellowship. These are important. These are not just there for those who are especially committed. These things are being laid out for all of us because we are all a part of the new community and God wants us to connect together. I hope that you'll find at least one way this fall. At least one. There may be several, but at least one way to begin plugging into the lives of other people. God's made us to be a community together. His grace has brought us into this relationship. And it's in that relationship that He's going to work in our lives. The new community is the society of the saints. The new community has values that correspond to God's revealed truth. The new community is a company of related and interdependent people who name Jesus Christ as Lord. The new community is an assortment of people with diverse backgrounds who are nonetheless committed to oneness of mind regarding the kingdom of God. The new community is a place to belong and a place to become and a place to grow. It is not a place for perfect people who are without problems. It is not a place to ostracize those who have not yet arrived, who are struggling with wounds. It is a place to reach out and to help. The new community is an army with a mission to accomplish. The new community is a, a group of pilgrims on their way to a new Jerusalem, our home. Grace Church Roseville identifies itself with this kind of community that I'm describing. And I will be the first to tell you that we haven't arrived where we want to be, but we're on our way. And if this is the kind of community that you long for, that you're hungry for, we invite you along for the journey. We invite you to identify yourself with us. In a certain sense, we have dared to name ourselves Grace Church. Because that word connotes so much, it implies so much about us that it's risky. But that's all right. That's our goal. That's our ideal. That's our sufficiency. That's our strength from God. So let's be Grace Church the new community of God. Let's develop such depth of relationships with one another that people coming in will know that there is grace here in this church. 
And if this morning you're standing on the outside or on the fringe of this family of God, we invite you to take a step or two or ten inward. Come with us. Find out how today in this ministry fair, one of the greatest ways to begin plugging in is the welcomers class that starts next Sunday once more. There you'll begin making new friends and learning more about the ministry of our church. Details about that are in the bulletin or you can call the church office and we'll tell you more. The thing that I want you to know today is that there's a place for you here at Grace Church. If you share this vision of a biblical community of God's people, there's a place here for you. And we want to help you find that place and to belong. We minister God's grace to some people that we know about, but there are times when we as a congregation minister grace and we're not even aware that we're doing it. There are people who come and who watch us, who are visitors, sometimes, and they say, I'm just going to stand back and let these people prove themselves to me. Now they do that for a variety of reasons. Sometimes and often it's because out of woundedness. That's why we need to be so sensitive and caring about every person that comes in our doors. This morning I'm going to introduce to you a, an abuse survivor who has a very special story that illustrates what I'm talking about, who illustrates the grace of God. Joyce, would you join me here on the platform, please? Hello, Galen. Hi, Joyce. How are you doing? Good. Good. Some of you have met Joyce, but she is new to others of you. You have someone with you this morning. That's Lamb of God. Uh, one characteristic of abuse survivors and, and children who've been abused is they have no concept of trust no concept of safety, no concept of continuity, that good things will happen. And in my recovery, uh, we realized I had never had any comfort toys as a child, no blankies, no anything like that. And my abuse had started uh, in infancy and has and continued for many years. And so one of my uh, new, new parts of my new life are some of my comfort toys, and I was told it would be all right to bring Lamb of God today. It certainly is. The Lamb of God is always welcome in this church. <laughs> Joyce, why don't you talk to us and share with us what you'd like to say. Let me get my things out of the way for you. Okay. I kept adding pieces of paper to this, so I need to move some of these things. All right, there. When Galen and I talked about me sharing, um, we thought perhaps we might do it as an interview. And I breathed a huge sigh of relief, and I said, oh, good, because then you'll be up there with me. And he said, well, I'm not going to let you be up there alone, no matter how we do it. So that's why Galen is standing right with me today. <laughs> We're going to put Lamb of God down. First of all, I'm so glad all of you are here today. And you guys too. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to share a piece of my story. Protect us all from the evil one. Let this sharing time glorify you. Amen. I told folks last week that if I could walk up here today, stand, and smile everything else would be extra credit. So, so far so good. I was remembering back about 18 months ago when I was sitting on the floor of the hospital wrapped in a blue blanket and uh, I was there because my suicide, suicide plan had been interrupted and uh, I was remembering that it was suggested that I attended church when I got out of the hospital and I thought, yeah, right. A church is really going to want me. I'm just fresh out of the hospital. But because of Roxanne Henderson's friendship 
I interviewed Rick Thulman and Galen Call here at Grace anyway, and it went something like this. I just got out of the hospital. I was on suicide watch. Do you think God can forgive me? Do you think your congregation can accept me? And they said, well, uh, that's our philosophy, yes, and, and God can forgive you, and, and we're just so glad you're alive, and we're just, you know, we're welcoming you here to come to Grace here with us. They said it much smoother than that. Um, <laughs> um, it's okay. Then I said, well, I have this problem with my back, and I have to sit on the floor sometimes, and I have to pace around in the back of the church, and sometimes I won't even make it through a whole sermon. And they said, well, you know, uh, we're just so glad you can come, and the floor is usually clean, and... <laughs> You know, just come when you can. That's good. Um, I said, I'm not going to sing. Not hymns, not anything. They said, well, oh, okay, you don't have to sing. I said, and then I thought for sure this one would get me rejected. I said, I never, ever close my eyes when I pray. Ever. And they said, okay, well, you know, we're just so glad that, you know, just you're welcome here. <laughs> I am not coming every Sunday. And they said, well, we're just so glad that you can come and join us, and you just come whenever you can, and, and, and we welcome you here. So I came to church, and at first I sat with the Henderson family. Uh, then I visited their small church, Church 35. I got involved with singles. I got involved with PSPS. And you have to understand, I was absolutely terrified and absolutely shy beyond belief. And they still welcomed me. I went to welcomers class. I got involved with international small church. And I began to learn to accept your love and prayers. Uh, I even accepted the ones, um, the generic ones we do on Sunday morning for the sick and the hurting. I'd always go, that one's for me. That one's mine. So I would take all the prayers that were available. So um, I want to read a statement. I, I wrote some, I did some writing for Galen uh, as we discussed my baptism, and he wanted some of that shared with the congregation. And since he's willing to stand up with me today, um, I want to share some of that with you. He will redeem my soul in peace from the battle which is against me, for there are many who strive with me. Psalm 55:18. I came to this church a stranger. I stood pressed against the back wall, unable to sing or concentrate on the sermons, especially if they contained the word Father, need, love, trust, or believe. It was hard for me to breathe. My hands shook. I couldn't stay still. I never shut my eyes. I was terrified. I have spent most of my life in this kind of terror. I am an abuse survivor. I was born to parents who had been neglected and abused as children, who hated each other and didn't know how to love me. God was not allowed in our home. My father's will was law. He believed fear was the great motivator. And if he hurt and humiliated his children often enough in the home, they would grow up too tough to be hurt by anything in the world. Crying brought increased punishment, so I learned not to cry. My mother swung unpredictably from sitting hours in a chair in suicidal despair to being totally enraged and physically abusive. Her screaming, which lasted two to three days until her voice would give out, could be heard throughout the neighborhood. The neighbors were afraid of us, and no one came to help. I lived in my father's house for 32 years. I believed I was responsible for my parents' care and to help raise and protect my younger brothers. When my youngest brother moved away, I left, and I have never gone back. Two years later, I was visiting God's house. I was terrified. I didn't know what was expected of me, 
Surviving abuse had taught me the necessity of anticipation. If I could figure out what the people who had authority over me wanted, needed, and expected without being told, I believed that I had some influence on the amount, kind, and duration of the abuse I received. Now I was in God's house, the greatest authority of all. What did he want of me? I didn't know, and I didn't dare ask. I started researching the Bible to see if there was any room for a damaged person like me. God said, Come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. I was weary. God said, I will make a home for the lonely, heal the brokenhearted, preserve the simple, protect you from all evil, be a father to the fatherless, forgive all your sins, and when you cry to me for help, I will hear you and not make you feel ashamed. I will not forsake you, but teach you, not harm you, but heal you. And to her who was not beloved, I shall call my beloved, and you shall be my people, and I shall be your God. Standing behind the congregation against the wall, I wondered who all you people were anyway, with your wholesome-looking children hanging on your arms in the hallways and draped over your knees in the service, getting their backs rubbed or relaxed and oblivious in trust-filled sleep. I realized that these children were wanted. These children were not afraid. There are others here today, like me, who grew up afraid and who still cannot believe that God can truly, honestly, warmly, or even want to love them, not these pieces of damaged, walked-on flesh. I am standing in front of you today to tell you that that is a great lie. God can and does love us, no matter what we were told, no matter what was done to us, or what we had to do to survive. God does not abandon imprisoned souls like mine, even if we become lost to ourselves, not even while I carefully planned my April 92 suicide. I am love illiterate. During the past year, I have been allowed to see God's people love one another, and many of you have allowed God through you to love me. You accept that I do not understand this new love language, yet you continue to spell into my hand, as Helen Keller's teacher did, in the hope that someday I will comprehend the reality of love. I had lost all hope of ever being part of a loving family, and yet many of you have offered to share your families with me, to be family for me, and as I struggle and continue to be afraid, you are quick to reassure me that I am truly wanted in God's family. I have hated myself, hated God, hated life. What I have come to understand is that my attitude about God does not manipulate him into loving me more or less. God is love, and today I'm being baptized to show the people gathered here that I choose to accept the truth that God is love, and his love includes me. God has chosen that we are not to remain in prison forever, nor are we to continue to be orphaned, abandoned, or betrayed, but that his righteousness, his power, would be made known to us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I believe that Jesus came at God's request to set the prisoners free. I believe that Jesus came so that we could experience, see, hear, and touch God's character. I believe Jesus suffered all the sins of the world on the cross, including mine, and defeated all the spirits of the air when he rose from the dead. I believe that I, too, share in his selfless act of love. My therapist said not long ago that the months after my planned suicide were very dangerous because although I had decided not to die, 
I had not yet decided to live. Today, I have decided to die to my old life and become a new creature in Christ. Will I be different after this baptism more at peace? I do not know. Will I be perfect and healed and never be confused or hate again? No way. Will my continued recovery be any less painful or long? I do not know. I do know the change has already come that will be represented in this clear, ordinary water which I stand in today. The healing change is the death of the belief that God does not care about me and the birth of the belief that I am not alone in my loneliness, that I am not comfortless in my sorrow, that I am not abandoned to my rage, and the belief that someday I will experience love, both the giving and the receiving, so that I too can follow the greatest commandments to love God with all my heart and soul and mind and to love my neighbor as well as myself. And Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish, and no one, no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Amen. Since I um, have a new life, I have chosen a new name. And I'm also going to ask for a specific prayer while I'm in the tank with Galen. <laughs> also, Galen's safety so I don't pull him into the tank. <laughs> we have another friend, Matt, who's going to help us. One of the ways my abusers hurt me was... Um, interfering with my breathing. They did that with a, a variety of ways, but one of the ways they did it was holding me, my head under water. So I'm very frightened of the tank, um, but I'm also very angry that I have a special challenge to do the things that other people can do. And so I really, really want to be baptized in the tank. We're going to do it just like everyone else does, ask all the right questions. We'll just have Matt there, too. <laughs> um, yes, I have, I have a new name. Um, my first name will be Riskaya, and it means um, I've lost my paperwork. No, that's not true. I mean, it is true I lost my paperwork, but I have... <laughs> <laughs> I think I should know what my name, new name, name means. All right, let me try again. My new name will be Riskaya. What it means is rainbow light, or the light after the storm, and it also means God's promise. My second name is in honor of an experience I had as a child. Even though God was not allowed in our home, God's presence, I was aware of God's presence in nature. I didn't understand about the Bible God, but I did understand about the wind and rain and trees and sky. And I was very lonely as a child, and I often played by myself. And one day in, a, in the winter, I was walking home, and I was very lonely and talking to God. And this big whoosh sound came. And there was a stump close enough to touch, and a great arctic owl, their great big white owls, came and sat right there. And we were eye to eye. And I just got this feeling like I was supposed to know that I'm not alone. And then there was this and it went back up into the sky. I'm the only one who saw it, and it was a very, very powerful experience. So I need a strong name, so I'm choosing for my middle name, White Bird. While I was working and, and thinking about what my last name would be, my family name would be, many people in the congregation and children in the congregation offered me their last names. And I thought, perhaps, well, maybe I should, you know, take a more generic last name and, you know, looked in the telephone book and, uh, you know, just couldn't, we just weren't finding one. And then a friend of mine in the singles, who's now married, 
She suggested, why don't I take the name Grace for Grace Church as my family name, since the church has been the closest thing to family I've ever experienced. So my new name will be Riskaya, and you'll be able to call me Skaya if Riskaya is too long for you, Whitebird Grace. So now I will be baptized. <laughs> I want, especially today, to let you know how much your prayers, how important they are. There were people praying for me while I was in the hospital. There were people praying for me two years before I attended this church to get me to church. There have been people who have prayed and prayed and prayed. There were people at this morning praying at 6 o'clock so this morning so that this would go smoothly today for us. The power of prayer is unbelievable and never, ever doubt it. And if you can help a stranger, imagine what you can do for your own family and loved ones. This is a testimony that uh, probably in some respects could be echoed by others in the congregation. All of us have a story of God's grace working, and it's a good reminder that there are many, many others who, like Joyce, are wounded, to whom we can minister the grace of God. We have received God's grace that we might minister God's grace to others. We're going to sing about that now as we prepare for baptism. And uh, Paul, I'll let you lead us. <laughs> 